Ernest Hemingway, the author of uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls and uh, Old Man of the Sea, also wrote a novel or story called The Capital of the World. And the, the, it really kind of emphasized the difficulty of relationships between fathers and sons at time. And it kind of revolves around a father and his son, Paco, and it's set in Spain. And Paco wanted to become a matador, and his father would not approve. So Paco runs away from home and goes to Madrid in order to fulfill his dreams of becoming a matador. Their relationship was severed as a result. And his father, desperate to reconcile with his son, runs uh, an ad in a local newspaper with the simple phrase, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the Madrid newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiving. I love you. Hemingway states that the next day at noon in front of the newspaper office, there were 800 Pacos all seeking forgiveness from their father. Paco, of course, being a popular name uh, in Spain, but it also speaks of the problem of mankind. We are in desperate need of reconciliation with our father who is in heaven. And that came because of the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve took of the fruit in disobedience of God. And it says in Genesis 3, 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? God is still saying, where are you? and a desire to reconcile with man. The idea of principle of reconciliation is bringing together estranged parties that are at enmity towards one another and bringing them into a friendship relationship. And the passage that we're going to look at today in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, just four short verses, but it contains five references with the word reconciliation. So it's a great doctrinal truth of Holy Scripture that we are to be reconciled with God, because as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So God's plan of reconciliation to fix the hostility between God and man came through the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, as we look at 2 Corinthians, I want you to learn this wonderful biblical principle of reconciliation and to be enthusiastic about joining with us in the ministry of reconciliation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in faith, we turn to you. We look at your holy word. We thank you, God, that it teaches us what we are to know about you and what your expectations are of us. And we thank you, God, that we have a God who is a great protagonist, who, who enters into the history of man through the person of his son and says, where are you? Where are you? I pray, God, that everyone here would answer that call. Here I am, Lord, and that you would also send us into this ministry of reconciliation. Bless us as we mind the depths of these ancient truths in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to your Bibles if you have a copy of God's Word with you, and there's some available there in the chairs in front of you as well. But we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. We have been on a journey through 2 Corinthians. It is normally our custom in our church to go through whole books of the Bible, a, a chapter and verse uh, at a time, and we find ourselves in this wonderful ministry of reconciliation today. 
listen, we're gonna, I'm going to read the whole passage and then we'll uh, talk a little bit about uh, how we're going to uh, break up this ma- marvelous, masterful piece of doctrine that we have before us today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 21, God says, and Paul writes, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You might find the uh, home group helps insert uh, helpful for you. You find that in your, uh, your uh, bulletin this morning. You'll see that we're going to look at this passage in three different ways. And uh, I've sort of uh, mixed up the verses a little bit in order to teach a little bit more of these principles topically. Uh, they don't flow as naturally uh, uh, through this, the way I have it broken down here. But you're going to see, first of all, the means of reconciliation in verses 18a and b and 19a, the meaning of reconciliation in 19b and verse 21, and the ministry of reconciliation in 18c, 19c, and verse 20. First of all, we see the, the means of reconciliation where Paul says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now again, the disadvantage of preaching verse by verse is uh, we have a limited amount of time, so we have to break things up a little bit. So what does he mean by now all these things? Well, you can just look back in your Bible and see what he has just expressed to the Corinthians here, uh, or you can go back and listen to previous sermons as well. But he has just emphasized, uh, for the, uh, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all die. And then verse 17, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So, so he's kind of pointing back to these principles he's already taught, and he wants to expand upon those with this idea of the means of reconciliation. And then you see in these little verses here in uh, 18a and b and 19a, there's just, just two undisputable facts about these texts. Notice this, that it, says, that it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's God is the one who's reconciling. He does it without your help. You do not contribute to your own salvation. You simply receive what God himself has done it. He, his, his whole, God is a just God and he is angry at sin and, and that holy justice uh, prevents us from having a relationship with God as Adam and Eve were hiding in their shame from God in the garden in the cool of the day. They were alienated from God. God's love also gives him a desire to reconcile and to express his love to us. Uh, so so his, Paul's point here, which is always Paul's point, which also needs to be the point of all churches and our church, is that this is very much God-centered. Paul really wants you to know that God is the one who gets credit for your reconciliation, for your eternal salvation. It's not something that we do. It's something that God has accomplished. And we do this because we cannot respond because Ephesians 2, uh, 1, for instance, tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. That's really the essence of all false worldly religions. 
is this arrogance that humans can somehow do something to earn God's approval, that they can be the one to bring reconciliation to God himself. But it's only God who does that. And how does he do that? Well, he does it through here, Christ. He is the mediator through whom he reconciles. You know, we've been speaking about the fear of God uh, the last couple of sermons. And what does that mean? And it doesn't mean uh, uh, terror as we think of fear normally. It means an awesome respect for, a reverence for. But it really would be terror if we didn't have a mediator. The, the, the God who, who, uh, who struck down all the people in the wilderness, the God who parted the Red Sea, who brought the plagues upon the Egypt, is the same God we worship. But we can go through him through a mediator, one who is bringing peace and uh, bringing estranged parties together. And we can do it because that mediator has paid the price of our sin. Christ is the mediator uh, whom reconciles us. Romans 5.10, as we said, uh, we shall be saved by his life. As the Apostle Peter says, there's no other option. In his great Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He is the only mediator. Muhammad is not a mediator. Buddha is not a mediator. Joseph Smith is not a mediator. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. He is the one who brings the reconciliation uh, to, uh, b- between those two alienated parties. And notice this, that God was reconciling the world to himself. Now, some people have, say, have used this text and other texts to say that everybody goes to heaven. They teach universalism. That's not what he's saying here. As one commentator says, uh, that, uh, that uh, God did not die with men without exception, but w- uh, men without distinction. The, the, the world here is the sphere in which reconciliation takes place. Uh, it's uh, as if uh, he's, uh, sometimes we'll say all people. He doesn't mean every person. He means all types of people, every tribe and tongue and people, uh, all nationalities. Uh, uh, Jesus uh, is no respecter of persons. You get a sense of this in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul, the context there, Paul's talking about the, the uh, Gentiles being folded into the promises of the Old Testament, but it's, the principle is the same here. Ephesians 2, beginning verse 13, says this, But now in Christ Jesus, notice he's the mediator, you have to be in Christ Jesus, uh, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself we might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both, reconcile them both, in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came to preach peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, him... We both have our access and one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. For those of you who got saved maybe later in life, you, you remember. You remember that sense of alienation, that you felt like a stranger. That, that, that there was just something missing in your life. And you, you wanted to approach God, but you just had this shame and this guilt, and you didn't know how to how to do that, but God broke down the barrier between you and he through Jesus Christ. What a remarkable truth it is. 
We now see here the meaning of reconciliation uh, uh, and uh, verses 19b through 21. He's not counting their trespasses against them. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let the, get your mind around that one. Get your heart around that. God is not counting your trespasses against you. Again, that's one of, the, one of the refreshing things about our service of worship, which many Reformed churches do. We have a, a time of, of confession of sin. And on the one hand, sometimes Calvinists sort of overemphasize the sin thing, and we kind of lack the joy maybe we, we should have. Uh, on the other hand, it's a healthy reminder. Those very same sins that some 20 minutes ago you confessed to your God, if you were in Christ, if you have that mediator, if you've been reconciled to God, he does not hold those sins against you. You know, I'll be honest with you, I probably would. <laughs> you know, I mean, some of them are pretty bad sins, right? We hold them against ourselves very often, do we not? We beat ourselves up over and over and over again. But the idea that God, like a loving father, how many times do your own children sin against you? Violate that trust, violate that love relationship, and yet you embrace them, you love them, you invite the prodigals to come home. But Paul says in Romans chapter 5 again, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The world does not have peace with God. They're in war with God. They hate God. But for the believer, you have peace with God. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't cherry pick. He didn't pick out all the pretty ones. That's painfully obvious from where I'm standing. No offense, sorry. But he, he didn't just he didn't get the, the pick of the litter. No, he, he chose enemies. For, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would dare even die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, he shall be, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we shall exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Our favorite Baptist says this, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this, you and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. But we couldn't. We just keep sinning, right? And God just keeps loving. And every one of those sins that you commit, those, every one of those sins that you will commit this week, if you're a believer, was nailed to the cross. The penalty's already been paid. It says here that he who made him, uh, who made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This is a very important principle and one that's often attacked by liberalism and atheists, the, the, the idea of the sinlessness, sinlessness of Jesus Christ. He was the spotless Lamb of God, and he had to be sinless. If he had committed one sin, he couldn't die for your sins. It was the problem of the Old Testament priesthood. They had to offer sacrifices for their sins first, because they just keep sinning, and then for the people. But Jesus didn't have to offer sin, uh, uh, himself for his own sins first. He was sinless. That's not just the Apostle Paul speaking of that. Peter, who lived with him for three years, said this, quoting Isaiah 53, 9, he committed no sin nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted at all things as we are, yet without sin. John, who also lived with him for three years, said this, You know he, that he appeared in order to take away sins, and him there is no sin. John 3.5. And the Apostle Paul goes on in Romans 5.19, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And you might be thinking, oh, yeah, but th- those guys are Christians. Like, they're friends of Jesus. They're going to say that. I, I, don't, I don't think many of us can say that about our friends, that they were sinless, right? But even if it is just propaganda, how about this? What about his enemies? What do his enemies say about Jesus? Well, confronting to those who were in opposition with him, Jesus, uh, Jesus called them to account. He said, which one of you convicts me of sin? The thief on the cross said, this man has done rough, nothing wrong. And then the centurion, the battle-hardened centurion, looked up at Jesus at the crucifixion and said, sure, certainly this man was innocent. Pine himself in court said, I find no guilt in this man. Take confidence in that. Jesus did not sin. And because he did not sin, he can be the mediator for you. He became sin on our behalf. This, of course, speaks of the substitutionary atonement. Now, another kind of a important part of theology here is it, Jesus did not become a sinner for you. He became a substitute for your sin. He was the sacrifice. So he still, even at the cross, even when the wrath of God was poured out upon him, he did not sin. And when did that happen? Well, it happened on the cross where Jesus, during the, the ninth hour and darkness came over the land, he yelled out, Eli, Eli, labak samachtani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God just couldn't look upon his own son as the, your sin, your sin was laid upon his account. And that happened because Galatians 3.13 points out, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The principle here in doctrine is called imputation. Your sins were imputed to Christ, given on his account. But I love the rest of that story is this, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We have double double imputation. Not only were your sins put on him, his righteousness was put on you. You got a negative there, getting rid of that sin, but the positive, his righteousness. Now, we don't feel that way sometimes, do we? But the eyes of faith, the truth of Holy Scripture, the love of the Father says this, that when the Father sees a Christian, he sees his own son in perfection. Is that not amazing? It's not ignorance. It's because the penalty, judicially, that sin's already been paid for. So the slate is clean. But I keep sinning. Yeah, and he just keeps forgiving. God doesn't have a future. He lives in the eternal present. And it's not like you're going to go do something stupid that's going to sneak up on God. Well, I didn't see that one coming. No. He died for all of your sins and the ones that you're going to commit 30 years from now. And 30 years from now, he will still see you as righteous. That's why you can have eternal salvation. That enmity, that separation, that sin no longer is there. And he invites you home as a beloved 
child. It's really remarkable. And I love this, too, because it's not like it's a begrudging, okay, come on into heaven, <sighs> wipe your feet, you know. It's not like the way we treat people sometimes. It, this is not like the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. We had a, well, I guess a relative through marriage who was uh, stationed in Korea, as uh, many in the military are, for a year. And he was in a valley with a bunch of heavy equipment, uh, artillery pieces and things like that. He was a mechanic. And he said, if the North Koreans attack, and they would certainly be the protagonist. They would be the first to attack. It would be their Pearl Harbor. He said they estimated that they would not live more than 24 minutes. Constant tension. There's still border skirmishes and stuff between North Korea, the communist, and South Korea, a free, a free state. Is there peace? Sort of, kind of, but it's really just because they're afraid to kill us. That's not how it is with you. God delights to be, to be at peace with you, delights to have this relationship with you. Listen to Paul, what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile, reconcile, that's a word again, all things to himself, having been made peace through the blood of Christ through him. I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you to his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Y'all, that's not part of the self-esteem movement. <laughs> I am holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. That's just, that's how God sees you. Now, what would you not do for a God who sees you when you know you don't act holy and you often are up, should not be above reproach? Well, you love him. You return that with love. And that love looks like obedience. And that love looks like telling others this wonderful news. That love looks like worship. Then we see the ministry of reconciliation in 18C, 19C, and 20. He and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what's this word of reconciliation? What's the gospel? What Gospel means good news. Gospel is something that you share with words. You bring people uh, the, this Bible. This is, we got a bunch of young people here today. This is important because it, there is a downside of some of this um, social justice movement stuff. And you'll hear Christians, they'll often quote, which actually I don't think St. Francis said this, but they'll often quote St. Francis saying, uh, uh, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. You ever heard that? I mean, it's not all bad because, I mean, Paul has emphasized you need to have a holy life to go along with a holy message. We get that. But the problem is, is people take that and say, all I got to do is live a holy life in front of people, and I never really have to bother with that whole you're a sinner separated from God thing, and you need to go to Jesus who's the only way of life because that's awkward. I just keep doing soup kitchens, and people will come to know the Lord. Y'all, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, can do a soup kitchen. And they have blasphemous doctrine. Do the soup kitchen, but you got to give them this word of reconciliation or they're just going to think you're a wonderful 
person, and they're not going to know about the wonderful God who sent you. And we do this because we are ambassadors for Christ. That idea, that's a strong term. I mean, you know, Paul is living during the times of the Roman empires. If you were an ambassador of Caesar, an ambassador all over the Mediterranean world, all up to Scotland, down in Libya, all the way over to the borders of India, if you were an ambassador, you, you had clout, you had credit. The authority which you got, had was a derived authority. The words that you have were given to you. Were, you represent the Roman Empire in all of its glory. How much better to be the representative of heaven. Do you know that? You're ambassadors of heaven, a kingdom that will not fail. I mean, if you were Nero's ambassador, it'd be a little embarrassing, right? I have a message given to you from Nero that he gave me during a drunken orgy. But besides that, this is what you need... Your message comes from God, ambassadors. Again, he didn't pick you because you were so articulate. Look at Moses. Moses like, God, I I can't speak. I can't do anything. And God says, I'll give you a stick that turns into a serpent. Thanks. You're ambassadors because he loves you. And you're his children. And you'll be loyal to the Father because of that and because you have the Holy Spirit and because you have this word of reconciliation. So you speak on God-given authority. And Paul goes on to say as though, as though God were making an appeal through us. What Paul is actually saying is God is speaking through him. And Corinthians, you need to get your act together and quit messing up everything. I'm giving you the words of God here, but then he goes on and says he gave us this ministry of reconciliation. Now, in the context here, the us is Paul and other messengers who've come to Corinth, other apostles. But the us counts for us too. All believers have got this ministry of reconciliation. What does that look like? What do we do? We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. You know, it's pretty humbling to be an evangelist. What's, what is someone's soul worth? Is it not worth you begging? <laughs> With you pressing the point? You've been willing to alienate relationships to tell them about this word of reconciliation? And we are, they are to be reconciled to God. This is a command. This is a command. You can't reconcile yourselves. You must be reconciled. Isaiah 53 says, by his wounds you are healed. God hands you reconciliation through the pierced hands of Jesus Christ. And you as ambassadors just need to ask people, are you willing to accept that gift, that great offer, that great appeal? Isaiah 55 says, ho, everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you will have no, you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy milk and wine without money. And without cost. That is a great message. You're not offering just free food. You're offering free eternal life. Well, it it doesn't cost you anything. It costs Jesus Christ his life. Psalm 32 says this, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Blessed indeed are those who have been reconciled and have been given this ministry of reconciliation. Father, I pray that you would help us uh, overcome our hesitancies. First, for those who don't know you, that they would be reconciled to you and they would accept the, the gift of salvation. And for the many who know you, God, that we 
would be so excited about this truth, so overwhelmed by your love, so confident in your holy word that we would speak to them this word of reconciliation. I pray, God, someone would get saved this week as a result of hearing this word today. And let us ever be there available to give light into dark places and to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to men. The world is in desperate need of it. Use us as your ambassadors, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.